0: Holy
1: cow,
0: that is not annoying.
1: What's Wait. not annoying?
2: Were you just punching a bag of Fritos? Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I was closing it up so they don't get stale as fast. You're very thorough. Those are going to be the laced stale. Do you, do you have
2: like a Frito resealer or something? <laughs> What's
1: that? <laughs> Did you like sew it closed? Okay, <laughs> sealed. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to Widgmo.com and check them out. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 38 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Jameson Dance. Hi, guys. Joe Eames. Howdy. Merrick Christensen. What's up? AJ O'Neill is trying to join the call, but we can't hear him. Up. He is here.
0: Yo, 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 coming at you live from the rental Ooh. agreement sphere of Provo, Utah. He lives. He lives.
1: <laughs> I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest that's Justin Searles. Hello. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Justin?
3: Okay, well, now that I've been on the spot um, my name is Justin I'm a software developer uh, I live in uh, Columbus Ohio about a year ago uh, me and a guy named Todd Kaufman started a new company called test double uh, previously he and I have been doing consulting for a, a long long time uh, and we're up to eight people now and we you know have a good time building software with an emphasis on you know terrific interaction design which which has resulted in us kind of developing a speciality for well-crafted front-end code, uh, predominantly JavaScript. And I imagine that's probably why I'm here today.
1: Awesome. All right. Well, um, we brought you on to talk about Jasmine. Um, Jasmine was written by, was it Pivotal Labs?
3: Yep. Pivotal Labs, guys. Uh, a guy named uh, Christian Williams, who I think uh, has since moved on to Square, and uh, DW Frank, who's still at Pivotal. Uh, they, they wrote the, uh, the core uh, library, and... Me and a whole bunch of other people in the community have piled on with different runners and add-ons and extensions uh, in the sort of like little ecosystem of the the 25 people who write unit tests for JavaScript.
1: Mm-hmm. All 25 of you, huh?
3: Well, it's not a lot, right? Um, <laughs> uh, and it's uh, it's it's been a it's been a fun journey of being one of the very few people who uh, really, really got excited or chose to get excited about about making it easier for folks to to write tests in javascript or as easy as it would be for, you know, whatever server side language they've been using. I kind of have this pet theory that a lot of people sort of secretly in the back of their mind long for the days before there was a social expectation that they test their code uh and and sort of, you know, revel in the fact that that socially it's totally acceptable to not test your javascript whereas if you're, you know, a ruby developer, uh I think everyone expects there to be tests. Um, so I'm I'm kind of here to ruin the party for people is usually my role on teams
1: <laughs> cool that sounds so, sweet
4: so why do you think that is why why do you think people don't test their javascript as much
3: uh, I think there's a lot of reasons um, some of it's cultural um, so, so really very few people have ever set out to become javascript developers someday um, just by nature of the fact that javascript is the only language that runs in browsers we're all kind of stuck with it to a certain extent and whenever you're stuck with something, you're much less likely to, you know, be motivated to really master it, uh, especially because, you know, if it wasn't your primary choice of language that you'd want to be writing. One of the things I like to look at is the, the history of Ruby on Rails and its development, where you sort of see uh, from the top on down, every major Rails release included some headlining feature that whose sole purpose was to uh, help developers get by writing less actual JavaScript. Um, and they're still doing it, right? Like with, with PJax and so Turbolinks and
2: RJS. Oh, Links! It's one of the most heartbreaking things about Rails for me.
3: Yeah, yeah, me, me too. And I think that that sort of like, um, uh, to call it the Ruby community like a monoculture isn't fair, but, but I think until a couple of years ago, it was, it was extremely, the prevailing view that I ran into was that, uh, you know, if a problem could possibly be solved, if, if, if a solution could be so contorted as to be solved in the server side, absolutely do that. And then, and then funnel it down to the client side to the point that, you know, user interfaces should 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 be really snappy and, and, and developed with the user's experience in mind. And I, I found a lot of Ruby developers sacrificing good user experience so that they could improve their developer happiness, which kind of makes sense because a lot of, Developers who came to Ruby in the first place came because they wanted to, uh, you know, work in an environment where they'd be happy over, you know, these other concerns that they yes. might have had in the
2: past. But now they have CoffeeScript, so I think that they're at least grateful for that.
1: They yeah, I have like to say, as a Rails, Rails developer, I love CoffeeScript. And they can pretend like they're
0: not writing JavaScript. Such hipster. <laughs> great. It's, it's like a face
2: for JavaScript that's that's palatable for Ruby kids. <laughs> yeah, well, I like it. Oh, it, I do. to, but actually, anyways, I think it's great. I'm just, I'm just trolling.
0: Is it like chocolate covered <laughs> broccoli when you're keeping eating your kids' dinner? Yep. <laughs> I'm gonna have to try that but, now.
3: Does anyone on the panel not like CoffeeScript?
2: Uh, I don't, I, I don't use it for my projects because I haven't felt like it gives me enough wins, but I don't dislike it by any means. Yeah,
0: I'm not crazy about it, but I wouldn't say I dislike it. I think yeah. it's cute, but I wouldn't go out with her. <laughs> I, I,
2: to I,
3: so I give workshops out. now and then on 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 TDD and Jasmine, and I often ask people, you know, what their what their thoughts are about CoffeeScript in particular, because I, I personally use CoffeeScript now, and uh, I'll usually get about half the room at any given training of of people who say they don't like CoffeeScript, and then I ask them to keep their hand up if they've ever tried it, uh, and, and usually only one or two hands remain. Um, so I think I'm that probably, there's a cultural resistance, especially within the JavaScript community, against CoffeeScript. Uh, and I'm still trying to suss out why exactly.
2: No, I I think CoffeeScript is great, but it's just it's another layer of abstraction that I that I haven't found worth the trade. Particularly because I'm not a huge fan of having to have a build step if you can avoid it. Like that's one of the big reasons I'm I'm a big fan of AMD. Um, but yeah. yeah.
4: You can do it without a build step. There's required JS plugins that'll just
2: trade C S plugin. Come on, man. I wrote, I've i written plenty of those things for TypeScript and Suite. I'm all about that. But it's just, I don't know, man. Just, ah.
1: Yeah, but anyway, so let, let's get into what Jasmine <laughs> is. Um, from what I can tell, it's it's more of a unit testing library.
3: Yep and it's uh it's a unit testing library that uh looks and feels a lot like rspec because being written by the pivotal guys who predominantly you know write ruby on rails with uh uh test driven rspec uh the dsl is is pretty much one to one you know you wrap example groups of tests with uh the describe function uh, a function named describe individual tests uh you you pass uh, anonymous functions to a function named it to specify a test um, there's before each and after each and, and uh, matchers can be custom matchers can be similar, similar way as with RSpec so the expectation library that Jasmine ships with is pretty similar so if you're familiar with RSpec, Jasmine should look very uh, familiar to you and, and being from Pivotal where they kind of practice something that approximates, it's my understanding anyway, I don't know, uh, I've never worked for Pivotal, but it's my understanding that the Pivotal way is they, they favor isolation testing where they can uh, so Jasmine very much is an opinionated framework about writing really, really isolated unit tests. So there's there's no, there's no there's no convenient way to write an integration test with Jasmine, and I've tried and failed miserably. So so it's really just unit testing and especially isolated unit testing.
1: So so then I'm I'm trying to kind of understand the case for it in the sense that if you're how, how can I put this. So if you're building a, a complicated front end for your website, then does it do well with the DOM stuff and the integration stuff, or um, is, is it more focused on, say, event handlers and things like that?
3: Um, the framework's agnostic to all of that. I, the, the, the only real relationship that the framework has with the DOM is the fact that it's almost always used w- with with an existing DOM right there. In fact, I don't think there's anything in the library that requires the DOM to exist. And 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 in fact, that's one of the reasons why Windows JS became popular. Jasmine was one of the first test runners that was used because it 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 needed to be DOM free. I think the motivation for Jasmine, if I remember correctly, had to do with Enyo, the uh, app framework for uh, WebOS. Mm-hmm. So like, obviously, the developers at Pivotal had been using Screw Unit or, or one of the other uh, uh, myriad JavaScript unit testing tools, but because on uh, web, WebOS uh, there was no there was no DOM object there. Uh, uh, to play with, is actually completely DOM agnostic. So what that means is that uh, it can test anything. Uh, I've never run into anything that I haven't been able to, you know, write a test for. Uh, but it, it's up to you to, you know, make that happen and to organize your code in a way, just like any other environment, uh, in in a way that produces testable
1: designs. So, so when you need to test the DOM, do you just put dummy objects into the DOM or...
3: Yeah, that's personally what I do. Um, so, so one, if, if you kind of just think of, um, uh, when we don't understand something, uh, or we're new to something, at least I, I can only speak from my experience. I try to start with just the most integrated thing I can because it requires the least understanding of the internal implementation of something. Uh, so, so if I don't understand a particular tech stack, I'm going to try to write a really integrated test that, that, that just exercises everything when it's all plugged together. And then as I start to gain a more nuanced understanding of stuff, I, uh, uh, will start to kind of, you know, try to, to write more isolated tests against isolated units because that requires a real mastery over the APIs that I'm talking to. Uh, and in the case of the DOM, the journey that a lot of people take when I'm, when I, when I've, and I've coached dozens of people on JavaScript testing now, they start, wanting, say, say they're a Ruby developer, so they've got these ERB templates that have Ruby in them. They want to start by writing tests against the actual, you know, uh, parsed and, and generated HTML through ERB, which would, of course, be very expensive because then to write a JavaScript test, you'd actually need, like, you know, your Rails server running to, to, to process these ERB templates. Uh, so they realized that's too expensive. So then they move on to, well, uh, maybe if I just grab a snapshot of the HTML that results and then use a shared HTML fixture for all of my tests, which, of course, that, that creates all of the problems of any other shared fixture in in a, in a test, in a unit testing environment where It just becomes a tragedy of the commons and and you can't really understand the contract between the code that you're writing, the test that you're writing, and then the HTML that it requires. And so they get a little bit more like deeply nested where you're kind of inserting big blocks of HTML inside of each spec, but that looks ugly. So then you just try to get better at that. Uh, And where I finally ended up after several years of JavaScript testing is I I wrote a a little library called Jasmine Fixture. Uh, And the idea of Jasmine Fixture is... Since I'm usually using jQuery to select stuff from the DOM, in what I'd really like to do is just hand a jQuery selector to this library with, a, like, it has a method called affix. So I hand this method called affix, jQuery selector, and then the contract between me and affix is that it'll make sure that the DOM has elements that will match that jQuery selector later. So usually my DOM setup is, like, a one-liner at the top of, like, the a, a, a test for a function saying, hey, affix something that is, you know, DOM, space, pom, uh, bar, and that'll make sure that it has stuff in the DOM. It'll inject stuff into the DOM that, you know, first has the class foo with a child element with an ID bar. And that way, if I use that jQuery selector in my production code, I just magically have that there for me in the DOM, and it cleans up for me after the fact.
0: Nice. Now, so what, what about Jasmine's feature with its... um? There's a little uh, DOM node inside that's just built into the basics of Jasmine, and anything that you put inside there it keeps getting reset. Is that the one you're talking about as like, the common fixture about the tragedy of the commons?
3: No, I'm not sure when this was introduced, but I do know that uh, the, the rule of thumb is that any, any stuff that you inject into the DOM should go into an element in the test runner HTML page, uh, which is something that you, the application, own. Or, or a intermediate framework between you and Jasmine. Uh, it should have an I, a div with an ID Jasmine underscore content, I want to say. And anything that goes in there, that's like your one blessed place to put stuff into the DOM. Uh, what cleans up after you or not, I'm actually not sure. I know it was added at some point later if it does. Um, but my framework cleans up after itself. Uh, when I talk about tragedy of the commons, I'm really talking about sort of the uh, situation where let's say we have this really big HTML file that represents um, many pieces of our application. Uh, it's like an entire page. And maybe that page would normally have like five, six, seven different JavaScript widgets or components or, or discrete tested <coughs> functions that would all use that page, um, that page's markup. Uh, if I had five or six, seven different, say, functions, and they're all totally separate, and the only thing that they have in common is that they use that markup, uh, or depend on that markup. If I it up into a, a flat HTML file and then included or incorporate it in such a, like in such a way that my, uh, test grabs the entire HTML document and shoves it into the DOM, that way to make it so that the DOM has all of the bits that my test needs in order for me to write a test that passes that, that exercises my code. Um, but the problem is that, uh, many different tests are all sharing that one HTML file. And so if later on I, I come to it and I need to, at one of those seven functions changes and I need to add to the HTML file, I'll go to find that HTML file I'll add to it. Uh, but no one will ever be able to safely remove from that shared fixture. So it just gets uglier and uglier and uglier. If you've ever um, like uh, uh, in Ruby, uh, a tool like Factory Girl, something like Factory Girl, you, 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 those files tend to only get bigger with time. Because uh, you never know really clearly whether it's safe to make something shorter or not. Because even if something's ugly, there's always the risk that if I delete something, I'm going to knock some other test out of orbit. Because there's no clear contract of which test needs what about this factory. And if I'm just reading a test, um, and when I say factory, I guess I'm meaning factory or fixture interchangeably. When I'm just reading a test... I want to know exactly, like, I want that test to specify exactly what the source code needs to do, and anything that's some external helper, uh, I would need to go and pull that file up and read and understand what it's specifying about the code that I'm
0: writing. Um, so your Jasmine fixture kind of fixes that, because right at the top of your test, you can write in your select, selectors that then tell you what the HTML is going to look like? Exactly. So that so that each test specifies
3: only the bare minimum of what it needs, and that makes the test more portable. If if you ever want to trash your implementation and start over, it forces you into writing code that has minimal dependencies on the markup on the page, which is separately, you know, probably a good practice to follow.
1: So, I, I guess my question comes into then: um, what if you have a DOM that is generated by a framework or you know, something similar. So you're using Ember.js or uh, X.js in the case of one of the projects I'm working on, and you want to get Jasmine around that. Do you wind up instantiating like entire views in, into your DOM so you can test it, or h- how do you manage that?
3: Yeah, that's actually a really good question because I think it depends on um, the nature of the framework and, and how much magic is going on uh, in the framework uh, because if it's a lot, if, if, if it's um, uh, if it's doing a lot of heavy lifting for you and you're finding that you're doing a lot of test setup just to make the framework happy, just so that you can write a particular test that goes end-to-end through the DOM, that starts over time, uh, or as it gets more complex, starts to look more and more like an integration test. And Jasmine is just uh, not the best tool for the job for integration testing. I never used something that was like a fully automated web test at that point. So... In general, if I've got a heavy-handed framework that I'm dealing with, I'll try to build a little tiny adapter wrapper around it. Otherwise, find out some other way to isolate myself from it, uh, and then just write isolation tests with Jasmine of the code that I'm writing, and and not write tests that that cover framework code.
1: Hmm. Yeah that that that's interesting. I'm I'm still trying to formulate exactly how I would manage the approach because sometimes you are using X. Ext- to look up elements or look up, you know, objects in the system or components, I guess, is what they call them. And so, you know, you you have to figure out whether that works if they're instantiated or whether or not you can get away with just setting up the DOM and saying, look here, use this or, yeah.
0: So, Justin, you've talked a lot about, pretty much all the talk we've had so far has been about... Test, JavaScript testing and integration um, with actual the DOM, with the actual DOM, right? So, testing stuff that actually talks to the DOM. My own personal experience with JavaScript testing is that anytime I'm writing tests that integrate with the DOM, once my DOM inter- interactions get past the most basic levels, then my tests become so bloated and brittle uh, that, therefore, the tests themselves get to be like, you know, 50 lines long as I'm creating and trying to mimic what the functionality is that I'm trying to hook up with, that I often kind of abandon that effort and feel like the amount of effort it takes to test um, just gets to be so high that it's not worth it anymore. And so I try to just test just inside of the of the DOM, just inside of the UI, and test my JavaScript objects and separate them out clearly, cleanly from the DOM. But uh, have you found... That or have you found mechanisms and ways to uh, avoid that problem so that you don't have any? You've never had any problem testing some kind of component that actually interacts with the DOM. Uh,
3: the short answer is I don't have that problem. Uh, the the medium length answer is fear not, because you're in good company. Because I think a lot of people operate under the same um, mo that you just described. Uh, so so it's something that I hear a lot, and a lot of people talk about how you know, only write isolation tests or only write these uh, JavaScript unit tests uh, at a layer beneath DOM interaction because they find it too difficult to, um, in a clean, straightforward and easy to maintain way, test DOM interaction at at a unit level. So what you're describing, uh, I personally haven't run into that. And and part of it is I've just been uh, pretty aggressive about uh, identifying what hard about testing this DOM interaction, and for a long time it was the fixture stuff. And I talked about that that Jasmine fixture plugin I wrote to make it at least easy to inject uh, at the beginning of a test. But there's lots of other stuff that makes it hard, too. And in your your example, uh, when you've got a lot of DOM interaction going on, or your JavaScript is responsible for uh, maybe lots of manipulation in in lots of different ways, you could end up with a, a, a very long test so in your example of if if I had a thirty or forty or fifty line test, I'd probably suspect that um, the JavaScript that I've got under test, the function that's under test, is probably doing too many things. And uh, I'd listen to that to that test pane, and instead of you know throwing out the test or uh, uh, trying to like test more cleverly, I'd probably try to fight, figure out how do I design so that uh, each
0: of the, each of the units that's under test is only doing a couple of things. So one of the things that I specifically found is very challenging is especially in event-based responses. So I've got some JavaScript component that's going to respond to an event that's fired on the DOM, right? And especially if that event that's fired on the DOM may be animated. So one event fires, then an animation occurs, and then at the end of the animation, another event's supposed to fire and cause something to happen, right? Setting that all all that up in the DOM just gets to be so unwieldy. I usually give up at that point. Yeah. I think
3: uh, it's a frustration I can definitely relate to. Uh, Until months ago, I kind of rolled my own little lightweight frameworks to abstract me from events in particular. I think events are very useful for uh, helping us build smaller JavaScript units, like in terms of functionality, if we can just introduce a little code that makes the event binding kind of feel more like configuration. So, if you guys are familiar with, uh, backbone views, at the top of a backbone view, you just pass it a, uh, an object literal of events of, you know, uh, both events that would get triggered on the user interface and then a jQuery selector and then mapping that to like a stringy name of a method on an object, uh, to be invoked. That says that the event object literal is this, you know, static thing that you want it to be. Uh, and everything after that are just individual functions that are very narrow and targeted about, you know, the interactions that you have with the DOM. And you're not actually worried about testing, hey, does all of this event gook end up, uh, working out? Because that's, you know, presumably it's a backbone's job and presumably backbone is well tested. Uh, so, so then your unit test isn't concerned with the, the, the events per se, only the functionality that you've bound to them. Interesting. Yeah. And
2: sometimes, Sometimes what I've done to, to kind of make that process is if you know that you're supposed to respond to a different event, you don't necessarily have to inject something to the DOM. You can just trigger an event and, and assert that whatever callback gets called in an event. It makes it, The animation case is a little bit more difficult. But.
3: Yeah, so, so in that case, um, uh, what I would try to do is, is separate the responsibility of the dude who's doing the event binding and test that by exactly like you're saying, simulate the event or invoke the event of actually the thing that takes, um, takes an action when that event occurs and put that under test because totally divergent types of setup and assertions. Um, but if you separate problems, then, then both tests become a lot easier to write than, than one big test that mashes up both those responsibilities. Sure.
1: Yep. So um, I, I'm a little bit curious about the syntax in Jasmine. So you talked a little bit about describe and it, and I'm very familiar with RSpec myself. But I, I was wondering if you could just explain um, the utility in in some of these uh, different features in, in example groups and in describe and describe an it and all that stuff
3: yeah I can do my best. Uh, I, I'm very wary of in a, in an audio podcast format getting into detailed discussions of syntax uh, you all have a lot more experience with that than I do uh, so I hope it's not too confusing at any point the the jazz ESL, as it were, the, the actual uh, public methods that are available to you to construct specs is very, very simple. It's definitely a subset of RSpec features by by far. Um, uh, the, the rules are pretty, pretty basic. I mean, at the top of a listing, you, you'll say describe. The first argument is a string to describe what you're describing. The second is an anonymous function. Uh, and then similar to RSpec, what you'll end up with are uh, nested example groups where you were maybe a describe. Can, let's say uh, we're testing invoice, uh, an object named invoice, and it has two methods, open and close. Um, we might have you know at the top of our listing describe, and then the string invoice anonymous function, and then inside that two more describes that are sort of next to each other, and the first one's you know describes the open method, so the string open with another nested uh, anonymous function inside of it and another one to, to later on in the listing to uh, describe the close method with an anonymous function inside of it. So example group organization uh, is similar to spec in that way. Uh, when you want to write an actual spec, the expectations have to all be put inside of uh, it. Uh, so so to create a new specification, you'd say it, pass it a string, which was a, a name of what you're trying to specify, and yet another anonymous function. And and if uh, it sounds like I'm saying the words anonymous function a lot, if you're writing Jasmine in JavaScript, you're going to be writing function, paren, right paren, left curly brace, right curly brace, really frequently. And and so for the fact that that's what pushed me over the edge to adopt CoffeeScript because it's so much just lexically cheaper to create a new anonymous function in CoffeeScript. Yeah, uh, those arrows
2: are, are super nice. Exactly, because then you're just hitting dash and right bracket. Yeah, I'll give you that. Those arrows are really nice.
1: Yeah. Um, so, one thing I really like about RSpec and Jasmine is, is specifically the describe. Um, you can group together, uh, specs or tests or whatever you want to call them that are related to each other. So, for example, if you're testing a function on an object that is, you know, you want to kind of get all the different edge cases and that gives you three or four tests that you have to run, then you can put a describe around it that says, uh, testing, you know, open function on the invoice object, for example, and then you just have it, you know, it opens the invoice with um, uninvoiced hours. It opens a blank invoice. It opens, you know, and so you can put those in there, and it, it really breaks it down nicely. Now, one thing I like about RSpec is that you can run it without actually running the specs or tests. So you can actually just get a readout of what those strings are as they're nested. Does, does Jasmine do that?
3: Uh, it, it does that, and it also doesn't have tremendous support for pending specs. Um, if you, if you want to mark a describe block pending or an it pending, you can put an X in front of it, uh, and, it, and it won't, it won't count against you, but it's difficult in, from a reporting standpoint afterward to figure out what's pending and what's not. So it doesn't have that benefit. Obviously, just to piggyback off what you just said, another huge benefit of the RSpec and Jasmine style with nested example groups is that that nesting, what it buys you is the ability to write dry tests because the before each is that you write this, the the test setup at every one of those levels cascades down. Uh, so so if if I've got you know uh, uh, say that going back to this invoice example, maybe each at the very very top that creates me my new my subject my invoice and maybe does some other trivial setup.
4: I have a question for you about the async support in Jasmine because honestly it's the thing that bothers me the most about it and the reason I don't bad. use it. Um, it basically seems like Jasmine's idea of, of supporting asynchronous tests is to like check for stuff being done. They're so pulling, you, yeah. yeah, you, you, you need to test some async operations. So that async operation needs to then modify some flag that your test can check on. Why is it done that way? And, and have you thought about changing it? Uh, I or not you. I don't know how involved you were in writing that. Or has, have, have people in Jasmine talked about changing it?
3: Honestly, I'm not sure. I don't use it. My personal take is that if I have asynchronous code, it doesn't mean I have to write asynchronous tests. Um, and in fact, it's often advantageous for me to write synchronous tests of asynchronous code. Um, so so I think outside of Node... Can you expand on that? What do you mean? Yes. So let's take Ajax as a simple example because I think that's the most common type of asynchronous code that, that folks do. Uh, so let's say I'm using jQuery and I say uh, some, some URL and then I pass it as a second parameter an anonymous function to call back to. Uh, if I wanted to write a test for that that was uh, really asynchronous because it's asynchronous, I'd be calling through to actual jQuery $.get. I'd have to create some sort of fake server to provide a fake response and then call my callback. Uh, and like you described, I'd have to use the Jasmine, a, uh, uh, async API in order to ja- force Jasmine to wait until my async operations are done. Uh, Mocha, which is, you know, a competing JavaScript testing tool, uh, has has sync, uh, API, uh, but still a little bit obnoxious because you have to tell it when you're done, uh, just by nature of, uh, the fact that it would have no idea otherwise. Sure. Um, so what I personally is whenever I've got um, an asynchronous dependency uh, because I write isolated unit tests I'm probably dealing with test doubles everywhere so if I've got an object that I've declared as being responsible for my AJAX operations uh, I'm probably talking to a fake one and if I'm talking to a fake one I could just have it capture the, the function that I pass it for me uh, so Jasmine comes with spies and spies are the, the test doubles or um, in common terms the mocks uh, that, that ship with Jasmine I would say in our example using $.get, I might spy on $.get. Then every time in my, in my subject code, if $.get gets called, uh, that simply gets recorded for later. And in my test, I can say, hey, $.get, get the most recent call, get the arguments, then look at the second argument. It's a function call, or that's a, that, excuse me, that's a function reference. Uh, and then I can put that function reference under test immediately just like it was any other function i could just invoke that and i i uh i could even test it under multiple contexts and i don't actually have to let the asynchronous thing go and be asynchronous in my test so so i call it <laughs> so I resync uh uh what's going on asynchronously because it just gives me way more control on the test now that's appropriate if i was trying to integration test and prove that everything works when it's all plugged together uh But for isolation testing, I think that strategy makes a lot of sense. And so it's never been a problem for me. But if you were trying to write asynchronous tests of asynchronous code in Jasmine, I'm sure it's probably pretty painful.
2: Yeah, one of the other things, Jameson, is I've seen uh, Derek Bailey actually wrote kind of a shim on top of uh, Jasmine's polling that gives you the Mocha-style syntax where you can get, like, a, a done argument.
3: Yeah, sweet. I talked a little bit about that. Uh, I think he was doing some consulting uh, in Washington. And, and he preferred for, for that aspect so it's cool to hear that he followed through and, and added something on
2: yeah it, I mean it's just it's basically just a layer of abstraction over the top of way Jasmine's already doing it but it exists
0: <laughs> so Justin do you prefer uh, Jasmine spies over sign-on uh, yes so uh,
3: Jasmine spies get me almost everything that I want out of test doubles um, uh, the couple of things that it that they didn't give me, I added on in my own little thing before I knew Sinon existed. And I haven't met uh, 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 Chris, the author of... Uh, uh, is it pronounced Sinon? I don't know. You tell me. Yeah, so I'll call it Sinin. Uh <laughs> So the author of JS, I haven't met him, and I haven't had a chance to do him other than a couple tweet exchanges uh, back and forth. And I really can't speak for it. My only impression of Sinon, JS, is that it's kind of a... Uh, a kitchen sink of test doubles. So it's got mocks, it's got spies, it's got uh, pretty much every every feature under the sun that you might be familiar with from whatever other mocking framework you'd ever used before. And I personally, I, I don't love. It, but I think that that test doubles are so confused by people. Like they don't understand why they exist other than for their own convenience. I think that that it's important for test double libraries to be relatively opinionated and and narrow uh, and consistent. So, for example, my favorite test double library of all time is Mokito for Java. And Mokito's readme is extremely opinionated. It'll tell you in order, here's the 30 things you can do for it. And by the time you get to number nine, it's, it's warning you. It's like, yep man, if you're doing this really frequently, you're in trouble and here's why. I think that's the approach that I like to see from a test double framework. And, I, and that's why Jasmine spies are very simple and bare bones. They, they, you know, they, 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 they knock out of orbit a function that you want to replace, uh, and they listen quietly for every invocation against those functions, and then you can go and make assertions against them later, or stub the behavior that you want, want to have an, ha- happen at the top. The one thing they didn't do that I thought was a huge miss is that they don't have any way to do conditional stubbing. So, like, let's say I've got a function called, uh, passes an ID, and it returns you some object that finds it by the ID. Uh, if I, Return uh, 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 foo when I pass it one, and I want find to return bar when I pass it two. There's no way stubbing and out of the box Jasmine, which is to me a huge oversight. Uh, so I have a tool called Jasmine Stealth, and it adds a whole bunch of extra kind of add ons like argument captors and argument matchers to Jasmine Spies. But beyond that, that's been, that's been plenty for my purposes.
0: So what about the ability to take an actual object and mock? Whole object rather than just a single function because Jasmine spies don't do that well,
3: right? So, so there is a uh, there is a there's two things. Uh, one, Jasmine uh, provides a uh, a little helper utility called jasmine.createSpyObj, spy and you pass the name and then an array of functions you want the object to have, right? Um, uh, which is helpful for for dependencies that you have that don't require the uh, New operator be used against them. So if like the, the uh, if the code under test is going to be instantiating the thing, calling you against that fake object isn't going to be terribly helpful. Uh, and so because when I started using back- the the prototypal new keyword all over the place for each of your back, I added Jasmine Stealth a little helper called uh, spy on constructor. And what that does is it gives you the same bag of spies when you first call. But it knocks the entire constructor out of orbit, so if somebody were to say, you know, new, uh, whatever, backbone.model, uh, it, it will return a new object of just those spies. And so that, that, that's really what I use when
0: I need to knock, a, knock an entire class out. And with that, do you have to specify what methods, like, for example, on model, do you have to specify all the methods on model that you actually want to, be, to spy on?
3: Better or worse. Um, And I I personally, I don't mind it because I like to write the minimal tests and I like my tests to specify, you know, what exactly I'm depending on about this thing so that if I ever pull my test out and pull my single unit out, I can see very clearly what are the two things that I need from this dependency. Like if I were to ever have to replace that dependency later or rewrite it. Um, But yeah, it's not going to automatically look at uh, or create one of these things, count all of its functions, and then hand it back to you.
0: And maybe that's something Sinon does. I don't know. I'm not familiar. Yeah, yeah, Sinon does that. But the problem is, you actually have to construct the object first, and so if, they, if there's any byproducts from the construction of the object, then you're sunk.
3: Yeah, and and when I was writing the spy and constructor method, I I went through the same thought exercise and realized I certainly didn't want to be constructing objects uh, on people's behalf when they're only asking for a fake one. And so, uh, is that Jasmine Stealth? Is that published on GitHub? Yes. Uh, So we've covered two of my little add-ons. I I maintain three Jasmine extensions uh, right off my GitHub. So my last name is uh, Searles, which is spelled like the word pearls, but with an S instead of a P, uh, slash Jasmine Stealth, Jasmine-Stealth, and Jasmine-Fixture. And those are the two that we chatted about so far.
1: So what else is Jasmine missing then?
3: (laughs) Well, the third thing that I added, (laughs) the third line (laughs) is called
1: uh, Jasmine Given. And, uh. Oh, okay. I know where you're going. Go ahead. <laughs> if anyone
3: happens to be, uh, and it sounds like Chuck might be, uh, familiar with, uh, RSpec Given, uh, uh Jim Wyrick, who, who is, uh, just one of my favorite people and also a brilliant Ruby developer and just developer generally, uh, he wrote a neat little library that's like 18 lines long for RSpec. Given does. It replaces um, keywords that people tend to use in RSpec, like let, which which uh, is a way to create objects that we need uh, uh, before each, which is to to do actions that we need in order for uh, our our downstream test to be to to run. Uh, action that we take normally takes place also in a before each. Uh, that, that the thing that's under test, and then it. Just like the assertion layer of what we're testing. What was clever was it just did an English language mapping to each of those activities in the simplest way possible, which is given, when, and then. Uh, so uh, you can say, given, I have this thing, and you can create a thing. When, I take this action, then I expect this result. And it, it creates nice, beautiful little condensed one line actions uh, instead of these multi line blocks, like you might see it's that look like traditional J-unit, X-unit um, methods where they're doing a lot of thing in each it. The art style was let's have one action per given or when or then, and it ends up being really easy to refactor if you, if you follow through on that and, and dry stuff up and pull stuff up, down and move stuff around. And so um, uh, in parallel, I realized I really, really liked that style. And so I ported it to Jasmine with a tool called Jasmine Given, which just provides the same DSL uh, for for Jasmine. So I, I don't like it anymore in Jasmine. I, I, I only use the given when then syntax because I just find it uh, it's a lot it's a lot denser and cleaner and easy to refactor and maintain my specs afterwards. So yeah. let me see
0: if I understand this. Given replaces the describe when replaces the before each and then replaces the it. Is that right? Actually I,
3: I still use describe. So describe that's up the example group. Given replaces before each when also it replaces before each, <laughs> and and then uh, replaces it. So, uh, textual cool. for each it anymore.
1: Right, so so basically what, what it is is that you do all the setup, those are the givens, you take the action, those are the whens, and since you're doing them all in before each is, um, you know, the action occurs, and the, that action occurs before each of the thens, and the thens are it. So, it should have changed this in the DOM, or it should have, um, created a new object or whatever. And, uh, yeah, a lot of this was inspired by Cucumber. Yeah. Uh, And, uh, Cucumber is another testing framework in Ruby, um, that had, that had the keywords given when and then. And, uh, with them, you actually defined, um, you would define blocks or essentially functions if you were to do the equivalent in JavaScript. And you would, you would parse values out of the, the... So if you said, given I, I have a, a user with username george and email george at example.com, then it would pull that out of the, the definition. It would do a whole bunch of regex stuff. And a lot of folks didn't really care for that but they did like the readability of the given when then. And so um, instead of writing your own custom function for it, uh, basically what you're doing is you're saying, given this step and um, that step is whatever it is that you're doing in your setup. And it's kind of it's kind of a neat thing. I've seen some uh, RSpec given tests, and um, I have to say that I tend not to use it, and it's mainly because... I haven't found a good style for writing those tests that really give me a a large win in the readability area. Um, I I tend to prefer the describe and it, um, the before each and let, and uh, do that kind of work. It just seems more straightforward to me. Though sometimes if I have somebody either looking at my tests or um, if, if if it's something that really does kind of lend itself over to the procedural nature of some of these um, workflows, then the given when then really does pay off.
3: Yeah. I mean, just like CoffeeScript, I was I, I didn't like the given style at first either until I really gave it a serious try. And once I did, um, I, I was sold. A couple of things that Jasmine Given does too, are just to make things denser and more readable, is uh, maybe like 60% of the assertions that I write are simply... Thing on the left side equals thing on the right side. So if a then uh, returns exactly false, um, uh, uh, that'll trigger a test failure uh, and print out, you know, in the test failure, which, uh, like the source code, the compiled source code uh, that failed. And uh, then just like, you know, slightly slimmer test instead of having to say expect thing on the left to equal thing on the right and instead of using the assertion API just to make sure that two things are, are the same thing. Mm-hmm. So we've
4: talked a lot about um, the syntax and stuff like that. How do you run Jasmine? I know you there's just a browser runner that you can open up a web page and run your tests and stuff, but how do you do it in practice?
3: Um, that's, really, that's a very good question um, uh, because it's changed dramatically over time and, and well, typically- I was
4: going to say we... Um, one of the strongest points about Jasmine it seems like it's the most well-supported by lots of different things. Like, um, It has all these plugins. It has lots of plugins as well for different runners and stuff, so it'd be cool to hear about those.
3: Yeah. And it's a, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword. It's really nice that there's community support that's provided convenient um, like automated runners uh, for different backend environments um, because typically, like, like, like we said at the outset, JavaScript isn't the first language of very many developers. Uh, typically, people are like, say, I'm a Java developer, I need Java backends, and I need to test my JavaScript. Uh, how easily? Well, probably means that they need a build tool that's going to generate for them the Jasmine HTML runner, uh, concatenate or, or combine or pull or find all of their JavaScripts and then all of their specs and, and put it into that runner and then run the tests. Um, so each of the backend environments tends to have just some 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 dude in the community who uh, uh, writes a a runner or a build plugin uh, that that makes that possible? Uh, so it's, it's good stepped up to that. It's bad because there's this like a graveyard, and I've 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 contributed to it <laughs> of of port- or out of date or 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 uh, build plugins that don't get a lot of love anymore, and because they haven't been blessed by Pivotal. Uh, uh, you know, aren't really well supported or, or might behave consistently with what people expect. Uh, so so for, uh, uh, I know that there are uh, runners for Node, there's Jasmine Node, there's Jesse, there's Jezebel. Uh, for, for, for Java, I maintain the Jasmine Maven plugin. Um, so really- do
1: you just run it as part of your regular test suite then?
3: Uh, uh, it would it would be part of the test lifecycle phase in Maven terms, um, and uh, yeah, it, it, as you're doing your build, it would headlessly um, uh, using HTML unit execute all of your tests. Okay. Um, uh, let's see. For 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 Ruby, there's a whole bunch of different options. Uh, Pivotal maintains uh, the the canonical Jasmine gem, the the official one, uh, but unfortunately, very recently it didn't support the asset pipeline appropriately. Uh, So Rails 3.1, which came out, you know, over a year ago, uh, supports CoffeeScript and and asset manifests uh, everything that Sprockets gives you. And because the official gem didn't do that, we had other gems crop up, like one called Jasmine Rice, and I maintain one called uh, Uh, Jasmine-Rails. There's another headless one called Jasmine Headless WebKit. Uh, So there's a whole bunch of the Ruby community. um, and, And... now, what, what we're sort of landing on is the best of breed ones actually run on Node, but, but for the purpose of testing browser software, browser, browser JavaScript. Um, and my two favorite there are Testacular, which I believe is funded by, uh, Google. It's like an AngularJS team member doing it, if I recall correctly. Uh, and, yeah, it is. uh, and Testum. Uh, I really, really like Testum. It's, it's a very, very cool tool. Um, and, and so it's Node-based. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're just talking about, you know, making it able to find your JavaScript. So there's no reason you wouldn't be able to use it if your JavaScript was organized in some, um, like, inside of another project, inside of a Rails project. Uh, Testum is fantastic for having a really great interactive uh, console that's multi-tabbed and can easily capture additional browsers. So you could have your tests running on every single file change with, uh, uh, you know, multiple different versions of multiple browsers. Um, I, I like Testum a lot. Um. Yeah, it's it, to, to somebody who's just coming in. I, I almost always point them to the, the simplest possible thing because there's almost too many different ways to run run JavaScript, but um, uh, run 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 Jasmine specs. Uh, and and I guess that's part of why I feel a little bit uncomfortable. Is I really wish that the story were a lot clearer. For if you're in this environment, I recommend this one. Uh, and right now, I don't have a really good answer
4: what's the simplest possible thing that you would point them to? Or were you saying that there isn't one?
3: Well, the very simplest thing, right, is just just to get started, just download the Jasmine distribution and in HTML page that you manually maintain. Every time you add a script, add your script to that runner. And A, it's good because it fosters an understanding of what's really going on and how the tests execute. Um, but B, it doesn't add the extra complexity of how do I hook this into my CI. Um, necessarily right on day one before you've even gotten a chance to write any tests uh, so that's the simplest thing I could
2: imagine yeah. and it's, I think that's a good case too because it's fairly simple to hook that up into the CI with like uh, just phantom Js and then maybe even using like grunt Jasmine like a grunt Jasmine task that you're going to be running for your CI it's not a far leap it's not like you're going in the wrong direction by starting with an HTML file
3: and, you know, I I have written Selenium tests in environments before that literally load a plain vanilla HTML file and make sure that they see green, right? Um, uh, and that's one way to hook into CI. That's like a you know very simple solution, uh, and and that might be good enough.
1: Yep. All right. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time. Um, are there any other aspects of Jasmine that we haven't talked about that we need to cover?
3: Um, the only one that I mentioned is if you're listening to the podcast and you just want to get started in a very, very simple way, I maintain a website called try Uh And you can go there in a browser and uh, type specs and type source and hit run. And it comes preloaded with all of those little Jasmine helpers that I talked about today, uh, as well as backbone and underscore and jQuery. And uh, a, a lot of folks when they're just sort of spiking out ideas, will will go to tryjasmine.com and, and just play inside of the form editor, kind of like a JS fiddle.
1: Awesome. All right. Well, let's get into the picks then. Um, Jameson, what are your picks?
4: I just have one this week. I found it a couple of days ago. It's this slide deck by a guy from Parse. They make oh. this um, mobile-like cloud API platform, and it's on running Amazon. Or sorry, running MongoDB on AWS, and it's very helpful. Um, There's slides, but he has detailed presenter notes in them so you can pretty much understand what he's talking about just from reading through them. They're short and they're sweet and there's lots of good stuff that I learned from reading them that I didn't know before. So if you are interested in MongoDB and especially uh, in running it on EC2 or just in in Amazon, um, check these out.
1: All right.
0: Joe, what are your picks? Um, I have uh, two picks. The first one is the book The Clean Coder by Robert Martin, affectionately known as Uncle Bob. If you are a developer and you have not read that book, then you are missing out on something on your career. And it's definitely one of those things that every developer should read, absolutely. I would probably pick that book over any other book um, for a must-read for all developers. And my second pick, which is, I know that uh, Merrick is going to pick this same thing, is SquireJS. And I'll let Merrick explain
1: it when he uh, does his picks. All right, great. Merrick, why don't you go ahead and then...
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, one of my picks is obviously SquireJS as well. It's a project that Joe and I released mm, officially last night. We've been using it here uh, at Domo for a little while, and it it essentially lets you mock and stub uh, AMD modules. Uh, So yeah, if you want to look into that, it's just on my github.com slash I-M-M-E-R-R-I-C-K slash SquireJS. My other picks are Macklemore. Uh, he's going to be in town here in Utah this Saturday, so I'm pretty stoked for his concert. And the Ardeo, n- the new RDO app, uh, their iOS app, is just amazing.
1: Awesome. AJ, what are your picks?
0: Okay. One, I'm going to pick Square Up. Um, I like Square. I've used it a few times to receive payments for DJing gigs, and I just used it this morning to rent some equipment, so I'm pretty happy. Um, also... I want to pick. I think it's. I think it's AllRecipes.com. I think AllRecipes and MyRecipes, because I found some pretty good recipes for Indian food and for pizza on there. And they have a really nice way of like printing it out, so you can print it out as a four by six cards without the advertisements, without the pictures on both of those sites actually. And uh, it makes it really easy to you know look over your ingredients list and put stuff together.
1: Awesome. Uh,
0: And I'm going to pick the great state of Utah, just (laughs) because. All right.
1: Cool. All right. So um, I'm going to do a few picks. Uh, My first pick is, I'm I'm sure I've picked this before, but it's something that I've been dealing with today, and that is uh, uh, Jenkins CI. I've been uh, working with my boss to get it set up, my boss being my client. Anyway, he's like the director of the project that I'm working on. Which sort of makes him my boss. Anyway, um, it's, it's a really cool, um, CI machine. I really like it and it has plugins for most of what I ever need to use it for. So, um, since it works so well, um, we've been playing with that. And then the other thing that I want to, uh, to pick is it's the podcast app. I haven't really been a big fan of podcatchers on my phone, but, uh, Apple really has come out with just a stupendous app. Um, It doesn't do everything that I want, but it does most of what I want. And so I just synced it with my podcast um, collection on iTunes and it brought everything over. And then what I've been doing is I've slowly but surely, as I listen to shows, um, I've been um, telling my phone to subscribe to them. And when I do that, it, it works out pretty well to just, pull the stuff down as long as there's room on the hard drive on my phone so anyway um those are my picks uh justin what are your picks
3: well i was gonna pick time Warner cable but they kind of let me down on my ability to speak clearly over skype today so they're out no i'm just kidding i would never i would never pick an isp um so i've got i've got three if that's okay yep um, uh, and I'll start with the one where I'm tooting my own horn because this is something we didn't get a chance to mention uh, during the conversation. Uh, that's the tool that we've been working on at Test Double, and we're using on our client projects right now, uh, called Lineman. Um, line, uh, in, in railroad terminology, a lineman tended to be an, uh, uh, a, a person who was promoted from the position of grunt, and so it's a uh, it's a tool that kind of sits a, a layer above grunt in your in your workflow. Uh, if you if you do node for like task management the idea behind lineman is I was really sick of giving presentations at conferences about how you know to improve your JavaScript uh, and then when people ask me for practical advice I'd have to tell them oh, well first install Ruby and then install all of these other tools to make your life easier um, so lineman is a very very simple little install that is a, uh, a web app productivity manager it it, you know concatenates all of your files it watches all your file changes it runs all of your tests it uses test them for 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 its test runner uh and then come build time you know you can write in ci headlessly come build time it can concatenate all of that for you and produce you a nice little static executable for for not executable static html javascript css assets that you can just deploy onto the web for for any single page client-side app work that you're doing Um, so, so we love Lyman a lot, and uh, if if you search my name and Lineman, hopefully you'll find it. I guess we share URLs here, though, don't we? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, <laughs> just put it into the chat.
3: The uh, the other two, real quickly, um, talk podcasts. I I really like Neil deGrasse Tyson's podcast, Star Talk Radio. Um, uh, it's really quirky and strange, uh, and sort of this dual interview format where he normally does an interview with a famous person, but that interview only took ten minutes, so he fills like an hour of radio time by having you know, some somebody in the booth with him dealing with that interview or listening to it piecemeal and kind of commentating on the interview. It's a little bit meta. Um, but, but that's a fun podcast to listen to because Neil deGrasse Tyson is just fascinating. Um, and then my last pick is a PC game called To the Moon. And if you like uh, uh, old school RPGs or if you like video games for uh, kind of the story element, this is a pure story RPG. There is no action. You cannot die. Uh, it is only about four hours long, and it looks like a Super Nintendo game with a tremendous soundtrack. Uh, but it's a really, really uh, uh, heartbreaking feels kind of story uh, that's just a terrific little game. Um, and it's made by a little indie group called Freebird Games.
1: All right, cool. Well, we'll get links to those in the Skype chat, and we'll put them in the show notes. And, um, yeah, uh, thanks for coming on the show. It was It was really good. Yeah, thanks.
3: Oh, thank you guys. I had a lot of fun.
1: All right. Well, we'll wrap this up. We will be around next week. And thank you all for listening.